You're listening to Proropod. Welcome as we, Portia the lifelong fan and Amanda the first time reader, discover the books of Agatha Christie. We are sisters who live on opposite ends of the U.S. doing a quarantine project and who love to be soothed by British murder mysteries. In this shithole of a moment in history, it's nice to have Poirot or Miss Marple solve it all. All right. So, well, welcome to Protopod. <laughs> I like that we do have it how to hire Protopod. I like I could it. say Proto without saying Proto. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Where we talk about um, Agatha Christie books. My sister Portia is a Agatha Christie expert from the age of what age, Portia? Uh, definitely high school. Uh, maybe 13 or 14. Portia has been obsessively reading Agatha Christie since early adolescence, and I have just started. And it's quarantine times, and so now we are going through all the books so far in order. Yep. And now we are on to what is epic, and I'm super excited because I didn't even realize that she had spy books when I started this process. I just thought it was the, the murder mysteries, but the spy ones are so good. They're so good. I know. And so tonight- so this is The Man in the Brown Suit, which is the second spy novel. The first one was... Was uh, Tommy and Tuppence, uh, what was oh. it called? The Secret Adversary. <clears throat> and this is her fourth book. Do we have the year of publication from this one? It was around 1924. I think. I it think was big. And then it was set in 1922. Yeah, yeah. And she had been to Africa, per Wikipedia, prior to writing this. So her, her writing of the travel of going from England to South Africa was based on her own experience. Right, right. Although it's interesting because she purposely says this is not a travel book. <laughs> And right, she's like, I'm not going to outline all the lovely travel things, and then she outlines all the lovely travel things. Right, but she's like, you know, I'm not going to talk about the food, or you know, like in a way that people would be like, oh, you didn't mention that. She's like, right, yeah, right. I'm not going to do that. It's a bit of a disclaimer. So, so we're going to do first the very basic plot, just so we're not all lost. If it's been a little while since you read the book or you haven't read it yet, we're going to talk about the basic plot, and then we're going to get into the details because as a spy novel, this has a lot of fun details. Um, and we're going to get into each clue and character as they come. But the basic plot is that there's a prologue where we meet a ballet dancer after her great performance in Paris. Right. Visited by a count. And they are both apparently Russian. But as soon as they get into a private door, they're like, okay, let's stop pretending to be fake Russian. And he's English, clearly. And we find out at some point that oh, he she, he mentions to her that she's originally from South Africa. Right. And they're both part of a criminal organization and talking about the guy in charge who's called the colonel who's planning to retire. And she's like, uh-huh, I have a secret. And then he's like, yeah, nobody could get anything on him because he's like the secret mastermind. Um, and, but he never does any of the crimes himself. And she's like, actually, I have something on him from his very first crime. And I've got it hidden in a super secret place. And my husband's helping me. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. End of prologue. And And she's like, I'm going to take him down. Then we get in. And so we meet uh, 
uh, the first of two narrators of this book, uh, Ad Bedding, Beddingfeld, uh, or something like that. Um, and she's the main narrator, but then we later start having interspersed the diary of Sir Eustace Pedler. So, right. So apparently, and she sets it up that Sir Eustace Pedler beg of her to make use of his diary for the parts of the story that she wasn't present for. So we yeah. know that Anne, we don't know exactly her, how old she is, but her, she's a young, young adult and her father dies and he was a um, famous anthropologist right, right. Um, who had studied ancient man and was really famous, but not great with money. So she's kind of broke, but like the kind of broke where they still have a servant. So it's like broke for their class. Did they have one? I yeah, she mentioned that. that. Oh, I didn't yeah. know they had one. Yeah. But she's all but she'll go to her dad before he passed and be like, hey, these bills are due. And he's like, I don't have time for bills. I'm studying ancient man. Yeah. So um when he dies, she's a little relieved because she actually has freedom and she wants to be an adventurous because she's been reading all these adventurous books. Um and she gets some offers like the local doctor wants to marry her someone else is giving her some pity offers but she gets an actual offer from her father's solicitor who comes to her village to handle the affairs or whatever and is like hey come live in london with my wife and i and she's like i'm sure your wife will not like that but sure i'll come because she wants to get to the big city and start her adventures and she and i was like it was like live in london permanently i think it was more like hey start and we'll find something suitable for you definitely definitely and then um when she shows up at the house i thought this was a really good quote because um the wife is clearly like who is this young woman that you just brought into our house and clearly refers to the fact that she's attractive and um i like this quote he, the the wife said oh no this is what ann says after hearing the wife saying passive aggressive stuff about the girl being attractive he, she says, it really is a very hard life. Men will not be nice to you if, they, if you are not good looking and women will not be nice to you if you are. And what's interesting is we can see that she's sort of like when she's around the wife, she plays up her big ears and kind of dressing herself like a tiny Tim and being an orphan and realizing that there's parts she needs to play. Sometimes she needs to act more sad and heartbroken over her father's death than she is. There's a lot of like playing the part that she clearly like is good at from the beginning right. which we learned so then um she is determined to get into an adventure and then she gets in one because she was going to job interviews she's coming back from job interviews and she's on the waiting at a tube station which is london speak for the subway um and uh she sees a guy fall back, get surprised, and fall back onto the tracks and die. But she smelled mothballs on him right before he did that. So she was like, that's weird. It's January. Nobody has their winter clothes smelling like mothballs. He must have traveled from outside the country where it's hot. Plus he had a tan face. Dun, dun, dun. Right. And then this doctor's, this person is like, I'm a doctor, let me through. And then comes through and examines the body, but he looks for the heart on the wrong side and clearly like is a little bit sketchy. And she's like, something's not right here. So she and follows so this so-called doctor and picks up a piece of paper that he drops after examining the body. Right. So she's like super excited about that. And then the next day in the news, she sees that a woman is killed. And the reason it connects to her mystery is that the guy who died, they found the address or 
what was it like per, um, orders a, to see a house orders to see a house that was for rent or as they say to let and a woman was killed in that same house and so two people died and what does it all mean and so she picks up the piece of paper and tries to figure out what it means and um and then she figures out it has something to do with this boat that's traveling to south africa so she like buys a ticket right and And her adventure begins and yeah so now we get into these characters so that's our basic plot. And now we're going to go into details of who are all these people and what are all the clues so that we can solve the mystery. So right. first we meet the ballet dancer, the one who's performing. Um, we know she's performing in Paris, Paris and she's from South Africa. And she she mentioned that she has a husband. In South Africa. And we figure out that his name is L.B. Carton and he is the man who was killed on the tube because he was coming to meet her. Mm-hmm. Then we meet um, the Count. I mean, we met the Count early, and we just know that he had a, he was pale and slim. Um, we know he's English, fake, living as a Russian right now. And used to be a uh, the theater. Like, he was a quick change. He could change into all these different characters on the theater. And he's described um, as having nothing really memorable about him except for his mannerisms and his costume. So he's a good person for playing different characters. Then we have the character of the big crime boss, which harkened back to the secret as- adversary, um, kind of like Mr. Brown. The Colonel. Right. They, I love how it's Mr. Brown and the Colonel, like really simple, easy name. Right. But um, we don't know who he is. It's a secret um, and hires other people to do the dirty work and sets up somebody innocent to take the fall all the time. Right. And they describe him as particularly easy to underestimate. So they're kind of telling the reader that he's not going to be who you think he is, even from the beginning. And then we, and then when we get, we know that we have Anne, who's our protagonist. She's the daughter of this famous professor. And is it just me or is her setup incredibly similar to Belle from Beauty and the Beast? Totally. She must, she thinks there must be more than this provincial life. She likes to read books. Right. She likes to read books. She wants the adventure. The only thing is that her dad, I don't think, is small-minded, but he's just small-moneyed. Right. But because of both his learning, which we come to know that that she's very familiar with his work. and Apparently she edited it for him. Right. She's a very smart person, and she's read a lot of fiction, so she's, like, ready to get out of this small town. Um, and then and then she often has this thing where people are like you're a young girl so therefore you whatever don't know things you're helpless you're an idiot you're too i mean there's a you know where and that's kind of an interesting thing where she's like huh people are perceiving me in certain ways um i'm going to have to kind of um play this up in different situations so when the solicitor is like you must be very sad and confused about what to do she like changed her mannerisms to go like yes i am sad and what should i do and then later when she goes to um lord nasby which we haven't talked about yet um she um uh is pretty 
what they would call it brazen right so she right you know, yeah. uses a piece, a card from somebody else that she doesn't even know as an introduction like to give to the butler and walks in and says yeah i don't know that guy i just wanted to talk to you so you give me a job at your newspaper and he likes it yeah and yeah and she's very says, sophisticated with playing the role that the person in front of her needs her to play and right. it's interesting because it's very manipulative, but she doesn't use it for ill. So you, as a reader, you don't dislike her, but you notice the fact that she's like, this is how that person wants me to act. So I'm going to act that way. Yeah. And she's very self-aware of it. And it's very interesting because she's definitely a lot more savvy than her age would let on. Right. Or for a lot of people her gender. Right. So, and she, and it so- seems to be that she's sort of coming to terms with how the world perceives her because when she gets to London and everything, there's all these things about like people referring to her as attractive. And she's like, am I attractive? And she's spending time in the mirror like, am I attractive? I don't have any of those like typical beautiful f- features. But clearly the feedback that she's getting from the external world is that she is attractive. And she's not asking the question in like a self-esteem way. She's acting. She's just asking to be like, okay, fine. If I'm attractive, this is how I should navigate it. Well, and it sounds like she's attractive in a um, darker way. Like, I, I mean, like darker of coloring. Um, which for Western Europeans, I think that that's always a question. Do people, do Western Europeans find darker Europeans attractive? You know what I mean? Like, oh, interesting. I didn't think about that way. So it's the 1920s and okay. So this is in England, starts in England, not in the United States, but in the United States, darker Europeans were seen as darker and dirtier and, because so many immigrants from Italy or Greece or Poland or Russia were like, mm, as opposed to the British and um, Irish and Germans who were lighter. Right. A and lot of colorism. So, yeah. So I think they refer to Anne and said that she looks like a gypsy, which I think is a way of saying that she's got darker coloring. Which um, again is an antiquated term, which we would not use, but that's what they use in the book. Right. I'm not saying she has Romani past. Um, <laughs> right. But that's yeah. how they refer to her is having that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is an interesting thing because she must. And there is that, you know, like. Right. She has less of that porcelain British whatever thing that she right. thinks is what the world is looking for. But then people are telling her that she's attractive. Right. So anyway. So, then- so we've got her and then we've got dead guy in Subway, which we know who, whose name we know right now is L. Carton. Right. And then we know that there's this doctor that she chased who who um, drops the paper. And the paper, this is the first big clue, says one, seven, one, two, two. Kilmorden Castle. And it turns out that Kilmorden Castle, which she's like, is that a castle? And she looks up, there's no, no castle's name that. And she's like, is that some, she used whatever 1922 was for McMansion. Right. <laughs> You're like, is this some horrendous thing in the suburbs that's calling itself Crimson Castle but then turns out it's actually a boat so that's how she ends up spending her life savings or her father's inheritance to buy this ticket to get on this boat to go to South Africa so we found out we from doing the research that she got 87 pounds as her inheritance and um, you translate that to now it's about $3,000 which for an inheritance is crap, but for a boat ticket, that's a lot. I thought it was more than that. I thought it was like six thousand or eight thousand. Maybe our math is off, but it's a lot. It was a very expensive ticket. But again, right. she kind of makes rash decisions. She doesn't think about things. She's just sort of like, "I'm gonna go." 
So then um, she knows from the story about the dead woman in that house was, we know it was described as foreign, but there was this. The woman, yeah, the woman who died was described as foreign. Um, That's all they know about the woman is that she died there. Her alias wasn't real. She gave an address at the Ritz, but she wasn't really staying there. And they're just like, some woman's dead here and she looks to us to be foreign. But then there was a guy who came in the house right after her and then came out looking kind of shook up and then they found her dead. So they're like, it must have been that guy, the guy in the brown suit or the man in the brown suit. Hence the name. name. so Anne figures out before she gets on the boat to South Africa that the doctor and the guy who went into the house were the same person. Um, or she has a feeling. She's, she's guessing. Yeah, because nothing. of the way that they described the guy, the doctor, because the doctor had a beard. Um, but and it was made up to look middle-aged, but it was all superficial stuff. Yeah, so she talks about how he moved like he was young. And so she from the clues that we're giving or like i think that's the same guy i think he followed after the guy on the tube died then the guy who um he he went to this house and so at this point the entire country is looking for the man in the brown suit because they think they killed this she this guy killed this woman in this house and so so this brings in our new character our new narrator yes Sir Eustace. Because he owns this house, even though he wasn't there, it was going to be rented while he was doing his it's January, we call, so he doesn't spend January in London. Who would want to, apparently? Um, he was in someplace else. Warmer. Florence? Yeah. It the was Riviera? It was somewhere yeah. warmer, yeah. yeah. It was warmer, but still in Europe. So his narration starts I think it was a Riviera. with him finding out about the woman dying and being superly annoyed about it and also complaining about his secretary telling him because he the secretary is like, you're going to have to go back to London and deal with the fallout. And he's like, I don't want to. That sounds like hard work or any work at all. And so we meet his secretary, Guy Paget. Right. Apparently, it was annoyingly respectable and hardworking, but kind of looks like a super creepy killer. Right. Like he's got a look like he's a creepy killer and everybody says it. And Peddler even says it's kind of like hilarious how respectable this guy is. Right. And how he. Yeah. Because every time they're like trying to search for the murderer, they're like, well, it can't be him because he looks too much like a murderer. (laughs) Right. So then... Um, Sir Eustace is told by someone in the... Sir Eustace is an MP, um, um, a um, member of the British Parliament. Right. And so somebody else came to him and said there's... There's some, a government official that says he needs to take these important papers to South Africa. Yeah. And, um, and he's like, can't you use the post office? All right, fine. So South Africa, just at this point, um, had been... Um, had a Dutch people move there um the zulus and the dutch had a bunch of wars and they were kind of settled there then um the uh britain took over as a um colonial power for a while and in the 20s was a transition time where south africa was getting its freedom ish but the people who were going to be in charge were the former dutch and a few former british 
Right. So freedom from colonialism, air quotes, because still all the colonialists who arrived um, had taken over control from the people who were there. About South Africa in the um, 20th century, you know about apartheid. So this is pre-apartheid because that was really set up once the Brits were not in charge. Um, That was kind of set. It became more official. But of course... This is that weird transition, and there were lots of fighting about who was going to be in charge when the Brits left. So it was, it was a thing. And the reason why a member of parliament would be going to South Africa is because I think they were assuming that they would still be the colonial powers once it all got sorted out. Right. Um, yeah, and they do sort of likely that the the fighting isn't a prime element of the book but they sort of refer to it as background a lot of the time that there's rebels and there's fighting yeah and so it's interesting because um the south africans yeah so there's a little bit of background about why would this be going to south africa because south africa at that point was a british colony um and it was pre-apartheid but of course it was colonialism so we're just keeping that in mind Right. Okay. And then before, so you, Sir Eustace has given some papers that he's supposed to take there that are very top secret. And he's like, I roll. Okay, fine. Um, and then this young man comes to his office and is like, hey, that government official who told you to go to South Africa wants me to go with you as your air quote secretary so that I can protect you. And his name is Harry Rayburn. Oh, and yes, well, and at this point, his name is Harry Rayburn. <laughs> And he actually even says it's an alias because when you Sir Eustace is like, what's your name? He's like, Harry Rayburn will do for a name. So he's clearly like, I'm so top secret. I'm your secret service protector. My name right. is Harry Rayburn. And he's got a scar on his face, clearly maybe from the war. So he, he gets hired on as a second secretary so that Sir Eustace will be traveling with both Guy Paget and Harry Rayburn when he gets right. on, on the, the, the Kilmorton Castle. To go, which so we already know our heroine's going to be on. Yeah, so now we get on the boat, and we're back to Anne, and there's a period of time where Anne has to deal with um, seasickness because she's never been on a boat before. But then she meets a couple of people. She meets Suzanne. So Suzanne, what's her last name? I don't know if I... We didn't write that down. Suzanne's... Um, um, yeah, and she is a wealthy woman in her 30s. Who is, as um, Anne describes her, an exquisitely finished product. She is wealthy and of good taste. She can just command whatever she wants on the boat around her. And she takes an interest in Anne as much as Anne takes an interest in Suzanne. Because they're both kind of the people who aren't necessarily following a typical role. Like, she finds Suzanne interesting because she's traveling on her own and sort of calling the shots. And Suzanne finds Anne interesting because she... um, is young and kind of unexpected she keeps she keeps calling her gypsy girl again uh an old word but she keeps calling her that because she's sort of like you're not typical english you keep you do a lot of unexpected things and suzanne is hanging out a lot of the time with colonel race who is a strong silent sexy type who and sort of like he's kind of sexy he's kind of scary but he is a rumored to be secret service Go ahead. And it reminds um, Anne of all the heroes in the books she used to read. Right. 
very silent, but, you know, was a hero. By the way, I found it. Suzanne's last name is Blair. I just feel bad. We gave all the men last names. I know. <laughs> so Suzanne yeah. Blair, right. Um, so she, so Colonel Race is her main companion on this. And we find out that Suzanne is married and is fond of her husband, but he's at home and she kind of is like being wealthy and flitting about while he is like, whatever, do what you want, dear. Um so Colonel Race is the main person who is Suzanne's companion on the boat, and he is rumored to be Secret Service. We know right. that he's a tiger hunter, which um, hashtag 2020 is very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and at some point, he gets into conversation with Anne, and what's interesting is that he, they're kind of talking about her father's work. And he starts making a couple mistakes and she, and Anne's pretty sophisticated because she realizes that like, no, he's not making mistakes because he doesn't understand this work, the anthropology of ancient man. But she realizes that he's checking to see if she really is who she says she is. So she kind of figures out at that point, there's sort of a, a red flag there that someone could be on the boat pretending to be her because something's going on. Right. And so she realizes that he was sort of seeing like checking to see if she could be an imposter even though she's just randomly on this boat because she's wants an adventure. Right. And then I think the last um, real character that we meet is the missionary who's Edward Chichester. Chichester, at least well in the audio book, it's Chichester. Chichester. Okay. So she first meets him when she likes having dinner at one of the tables and he's like, our poor black brothers and being like a missionary and they, um, a white savior kind of way but she said that he talked like a missionary in a play and then later was like why is he pale if he's been in africa now right. granted this is a boat going from england to africa but if you've so been he's supposed africa, to have been in africa all this time and just briefly back in england but he looks pasty as me so why but, and he's creepy so you know we get a bad vibe from him early on so then um she um they stop in Madeira, which is an island that's kind of like halfway between Portugal and the Morocco. It's well, it's actually kind of off the coast of Morocco. I looked it up. So, like, we're on our way down from England, and they stop at an island, and it's kind of um, at the equator, and so it's a place that people like to go to, like Hawaii, right? You know, like it's that kind of weather. So a lot of people get off, and there's more more rooms. So Suzanne says to Anne, "Hey." Why don't you move to a room with a window? Because you don't have to be in an inside room anymore. We've got plenty of space. So she's like, great. And then a steward says, hey, room 17 is available. She's like, great. So she goes to get it. And then the reverend shows up and says, no, I'm supposed to get room 17. And then Guy Paget shows up and says, no, I'm supposed to be in room 17. And they have this weird fight. And there's two other rooms available that are nicer. So it's not like there's anything special about this room. And we know that Anne didn't want room 13 because she's superstitious. But there's also like room 28, which seems fine. But at this point, Anne's just not going to lose to these two dudes. She's like, fuck it. I'm measuring my dick. We're doing this. (laughs) And she doesn't know why the Reverend and Paget won't back down either because no one will back down. They're all just like having this argument. Yeah, why are we all wanting room 17? And Paget says it's because um, when we get to Sir Eustace's um, story of the same thing, Paget's like, well, you told me to get this room for, you know, so we could have an extra room to work in. And Peddler's like, I don't care. What their other ones were just fine, and Paget's like, whatever. 
But you told me to sit. You told me you wanted room seventeen. He's like, I didn't even say that or whatever. Right, but um, and uh, on when we start talking about the themes, it's um, Anne does an interesting thing. So they have a big fight where they're all yelling and they're measuring their dicks, and then Anne's like, "But I got an ace in the hole." Stuart, (laughs) I was promised the room. You know, like she leaves the fight, right, to get the room, and she right. Right, and she wins, which was awesome. And then... Like, the whole yelling at each other wasn't working. Right, yeah. So she, she does sort of, like, use sort of the disadvantaged female image to right. her own benefit. So also in um, Sir Eustace's um, narrative, he tells the story of this piece of paper that the Reverend dropped, and we hear it from... Right, so we know that Anne is talking to the Reverend, and she's sort of, like, interviewing him, like, why are you so pale if you've been in Africa all this time? She doesn't trust him already, even though there's something really going on, because she goes to fake apologize for him, like, hey, sorry, I got room 17. (laughs) Um, But have you really been in Africa? Tell me about it. And then... There was that weird quote where he's, she's like, have you been threatened to eat many times? Which is totally ignorant. I mean, this idea that... Well, because he mentioned cannibals and then right, he then mentioned he goes, cannibals and then she was like, well, dude, have you almost been eaten? And he was like, I don't joke about a sacred subject. And she's like, a what? She's like, I know cannibalism was sacred. And it's like, it's all a bunch of like, yeah, probably nobody so here knows anything about the actual like indigenous religions, but right. Right, exactly. Um, so from her point of view, Sir Eustace picks up the paper and um, and the reverend looks at it and then gets super pale and uncomfortable. Uh, but from Sir Eustace's, he picks up the paper and it says, don't try to play a lone hand. And, and he's so, like, yeah, I saw this piece of paper and I handed it to the Reverend because he clearly had dropped it and it said, don't try to play a lone hand. Yeah. And it's like, so we oh. know that this story happened. We heard it from both narrators. Right. So it's important. Uh, the other thing we heard from both narrators is the story of the diamonds that we heard at the dinner. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Ah. So the story of the diamonds are back during right after the war. So this it's only twenty two, so the war ended in nineteen nineteen. So or uh yeah. So um anyway, so it's not like it's been a bazillion years, it's been three, but okay. Um but um or actually, no, no, no. It happened the, before the war, and then they went into the war. The young men went into the war. I screwed up the story already. Okay, this is before the war. So before the war. Two young men. One was a rich guy. One was a poor guy, but they were best friends. They started going through um, close to Kimberley. So a lot of people have heard of Kimberley, which is where there's a huge diamond mine, which is kind of, if you're looking at Africa... And you go down to the point at the bottom, which is South Africa. Kimberly is kind of like a little bit up and to the right. Just okay. Uh, and so they were in that general area, but not at Kimberly. And they found a vein of diamonds and they were super excited. We found this vein of diamonds. And according to the, we hear later, it wasn't like we found it. We're rich. It was more like we found something. How exciting. So then they go to go and show people from these. Here. Are, yeah, but they were excited because one of the young men was not well off, and the other one, it was the heir of a diamond from Mr. De Beers. So 
they were kind of like excited, like we've made ourselves. Like one of them was proving himself as a man, and the other right. one was proving himself to be like as good as his father. I'm right. not it just was... my father's inheritance. Right. So they go to go tell De Beers, because yes, the same De Beers that controls the diamond market now controlled the diamond market a hundred years ago. Hashtag yes. blood diamonds. Hashtag it's a horrible, horrible thing. But anyway. Um, but at the same time, in the Kimberly mines was a big theft where a bunch of diamonds were stolen at the same time that these young men found these diamonds from a different source in south america it's in south africa no the no the the new source within south america no it was, it was the whole, whole thing what no it was in the, no. okay listeners this is a controversy that was the whole thing because they found they called it a a, a new kimberly meaning that they found another source in south america they had like gone like white man col colonializing in another continent and found different wasn't in south africa okay i am going to my sister uh, doesn't believe me so okay while she looks this up to find out that i'm right i'm going to tell you a story in the same story time from dinner which i thought was hilarious i'm going to give you this quote during sir eustace peddler telling of his dinner party he was like he's kind of super jealous of the colonel race the whole time because the colonel is like charming and maybe secret service and so he's got all these stories so sir eustace tries to keep up with him with his stories and he tells this story that he says a friend of mine was out sh on a shooting trip we're in in east africa one night he came out of his tent for some reason and then it was startled by a low growl he turned sharply and saw a lion crouching to spring he had left his rifle in the tent quick as a Quick as thought, he ducked, and the lion sprang right over his head. Annoyed at having missed him, the animal growled and prepared to spring again. He then again ducked, and again the lion sprang over him. This happened a third time, but by now he was close to the entrance of his tent, and he darted in to seize his rifle. When he emerged, rifle in hand, the lion had disappeared. That puzzled him greatly. He crept around the back of his tent, where he where there was a little clearing there sure enough was the lion practicing low jumps which i just thought was hilarious <laughs> that was just to me the funniest part of the book was the thing about the lion practicing low jumps because <laughs> the lion kept jumping over his head so okay. did you find out that i'm right you're right they came to kimberly in south africa to give them to the beers to show them right like but it was supposed to be a whole other thing that De Beers wasn't even working with. We went to South America okay, and right, found right. a whole other source of diamonds that you guys don't even know about. So they come to Kimberly to show, and on their way, they meet... Sexy Nadine. lady. Nadina? Nadine, what is it? Anyway. Nadina. And they both fall in love with her, and they're both like, oh my gosh, and, you know, anyway. But then they go to Kimberly after meeting her like on their way because it's not like Kimberly's kind of in central I mean like it's this would be a, over 100 years ago traveling would be a weeks mm -hmm. you know get from especially from South America but even from the coast to get into Kimberly they would have to you know so they are hanging out with Nadina on their way and then they get to Kimberly and they're like here's our new find and they open it and it's full of sugar and at the time time <coughs> um oh no no they open it and they find some diamonds 
but then some diamonds from Kimberly, from the mines in Kimberly, were opened and they found sugar and they were like, oh my gosh, you didn't find something new. You stole these diamonds from your father's mine in, Kimber- in, yeah. in Kimberly. Yeah, you stole these. Right. Um, so basically they, you know, in telling of the story, it's like these two kids stole these diamonds and tries to pass them off as they'd found this new place in South Africa. And, and that's the story, that's all we know for quite a while. Right. And the colonel is telling the story, not the crime boss colonel, but Colonel Race, but colonel Race is telling the story um, to this dinner party that includes Anne and um, Suzanne and Sir Eustace. He's just telling this story. And then in the background, Harry Rayburn, the secretary who's come on to protect Sir Eustace, kind of looks like a ghost in the back. Like, I can't believe I'm hearing the story right now. So something clearly is connected between him and the story when he walks up on them hearing the story. Um, and then and at some point in that conversation, Suzanne says, well, you know, about something, something about um, criminals getting arrested on liners and Chittister drops his cup. So everyone's looking pretty suspicious right now. So and there's they, this thing with the note. The, Go on. They do mention the bad guy called the colonel being involved in this theft at this point. Do they? And they also mention uh, Nadina. Being involved. Um, yeah, I think that there were mentioned. I was just trying to like find it. But anyway, um, so we know that some of those people are involved already. Okay. And then from the note that Anne had found that had the numbers 17122, she's kind of gone through like, is that January? Is it 17 January 22? Or is it or is it 171? They come to that later. So anyways, that's part of the reason why she ended up kind of wanting to have room 17, even though that's why isn't why she started there, because she's thinking that her note has something to do with 1 a.m., in room 17. So at 1 a.m. that night, she stays home from the party. Yeah, on the 22nd. She stays home from whatever ship merriment is happening. Um, And some man comes into her room, stabbed, like, save me. And right at 1 a.m., he's like, save me. And he's all stabbed. And then some woman comes in after him and is the the night stewardess. Like, did someone come in here? And she's like, nope. I'm not having a man under my bed. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and Anne is amazing because if a guy showed up at my door and was like, save me, I'd be like, a duh, a duh. But Anne's like, go She's behind so smooth. this. Go behind my trunk. Lifts up the trunk and then is like at the sink, like, I'm getting stuff out of my trunk. What? It's 1 a.m. And then this nice steward just shows up and said, hey, I thought I heard you cry out. And she's like, no, nothing. Everything's fine. And then um she gets to the guy that she had just hid um and she was like oh oh the night stewardess tells her that the guy's drunk she was like oh mm-hmm. there's a drunk guy going around she's like oh i just saved a guy for nothing but then when she says hey get up she realizes that he's been stabbed and he fainted so actually did something dangerous did happen and, and she's she's attending to his wounds and then he gets up and he's like bitch get off me why, why are you trying to save me? And then she's like, because you said save me? And he's like, I never said that. Don't save me. Leave me alone. And then she's like, I love him. He's awesome. He doesn't <laughs> think she loves him until the next night, by the way. 
So it's not till tomorrow that I was like, what's happening? But anyways, yeah, she's super into the fact that he's insane. Um, (laughs) Your characterization of there, but by the way, uh, spoiler alert, Agatha Christie uses the, a man showed up my door and says, save me again. Ah. So in another, um, actually, I think it's another spy one. Uh, where a guy shows up at the door and is like, save me. And like, yeah. But anyway, um, so yeah. So she's so, like attending to his wounds and he's like, get off me, ho. And then she's like, you need this. <laughs> you need, you need this stab attention. And then she like does it and then he leaves. And they have all this weird like moonlighting banner, banter, like, right. You need my help. I never want to see you again. I hope I see you tomorrow. Like, what is happening? It's a lot. <laughs> like, he's too angry at her for no reason, and she's too attentive to him. And it's just, it's a lot happening. But she also teases him, like, in the middle of it. Yeah. So, and then we find out that at that same time, her friend Suzanne, someone came in and dropped off a roll of films that she had lost. I say right. films so- because I'm, I'm British now from reading these novels, because they right. say films. Um, but they dropped off a roll of film, which for you uh, young people, that's how we used to take pictures before we had <laughs> Instagram. Right. Oh, yeah. explain that. But the moonlighting reference. <laughs> Everyone's going to get moonlighting, right? Clearly, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. So anyway, the next day, Anne's like, maybe I should tell everybody everything that's happening. She decided to tell Suzanne because she's fun. And as the so reader, goes- you're like... Keep it all to yourself. Don't trust Suzanne. She's probably the colonel. At least that was me. I'm so suspicious. I was like, don't tell Suzanne. But then Suzanne is delightful. So she decides to tell Suzanne, like, oh my gosh, I'm on this boat because I'm following this adventure and here's everything that's happening. And Suzanne's like, oh my God, this is awesome. I'm a rich This is so fun. I'm so rich and bored. Let's adventure. I love you. And so they figure out, because the two of them together are pretty smart, that A... Chichester, 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 the Reverend was Chichester was the night stewards, right? So yeah, because Suzanne's like, oh, what did the night stewardess look like? And she figures out that it's Chichester in drag, um, which I was impressed by. They figure out that the roll of films that was given to Suzanne in the middle of the night was diamonds, the diamonds from the story, because it actually turns out it wasn't room seventeen at one a.m. It was room 71 at 1 a.m. on the 22nd. And then um, the they figure out that Harry is the man in the brown suit. And actually, it sounds like Anne figured out that as soon as she saw him and said, save me. Right, that she figured out that Harry Rayburn, who came aboard as Sir Eustace Peddler's secretary slash protector, is the man in the brown suit who's wanted at this point for the murder of the dead, this, woman, you don't of the dead woman. Yes. And then, and then they put together that the dead woman is this famous dancer who says she's Russian. And the reason why we figure that out is because she was the one who was supposed to be in room 71 on this trip, but she never showed. Right. Zan's in it. And then, yeah. So these two ladies are being super um, independent women. It's like Charlie's Angels in here. They're just like, you know. Lucy Lou and Carmen Diaz. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> Anne is like, because they're being so independent and whatever. And then Anne's like, I love him. I want to give him my kidneys. 
I'm going to stalk him. What she says. She says, I'll love him. I'll kill for him. I'll die for him. I'll be his slave. Literally, she says those words. The kidneys was my own interpretation. She did. She literally said slave because that's a triggering word. So I noticed it. She definitely said, I will follow him everywhere. I'll kill for him. I'll die for him. I'll be his slave. She definitely said all those things. And I was like, this is a lot for a man who just came in your room, stabbed, and was rude to you. (laughs) <laughs> what's happening and she's been so like independent lady up until this point and then all of a sudden she's just like yeah and what she said is the reason he was rude is because um, right she does the wounded puppy thing like he's 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 he treats me badly because he's been through a lot <laughs> which is always a good thing for a woman to justify and then but the other thing is is then suzanne's like well he's the one who must have killed if we figured out oh yeah yeah so they figured out that the dancer who didn't show up to the ship, the reason she didn't show up is because she was killed in the house. She was the dead woman. So Anne figures that out. And so Suzanne's like, well, uh, then Harry must be the man in the brown suit and killed her. And and so Anne's like, no, he didn't because he has the wrong kind of head because that was one of the things he talked about earlier because she's... Dodecocephalic versus... Right. yeah. So she's basically an untrained um, anthropologist. So she knows the different shapes of head. And Suzanne's like, that's not what you said earlier. And she's like, no, 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 he didn't kill her. And she's like, why do you say that? And she's like, yeah, because he wouldn't have stabbed her. He would have, um, if he would have killed her, he would have killed her with her bare hands. And that, with his bare hands. And that made him more attractive to both of the women. Yeah. Mm. So a lot, lot happened in there. A lot happening. A lot, lot of layers to unpack there. Yeah, so like, for me as a reader, I'm super into Anne up to this point. She's so independent. She's so whatever. She'll say whatever to anybody. And then when she's this, like, all of a sudden has this breakdown with Suzanne. Like, no, don't think he's a murderer because I'm, in, I'm obsessed with him. I'm in love with him. And then this, like, total, like, not like, I think he's hot. I want to see about it kind of way. But just like, and I'm going to just upturn my life to follow him kind of way i'm just like what how is the same how is this the same character well and i think what was interesting is that right after that suzanne said you're not very british or english i can't make women yeah because this is not what a nice british girl would say right this is like you know passionate like crazy talk right you're both more independent but then all this passionate talk is also not very british and Suzanne right. also says, I'll never feel like that about anyone because she loves her husband, but not like that. Yeah, I, I remember, I didn't remember the slave for you, but I remember the walk my feet on, walk on bloody, walk so on, there was so something about walking and hurting her feet. And, and yeah. Anyway, so then. And then, and then they're about to arrive in Cape Town, but the night before, Anne's up on the dock thinking about life and probably on being a creeper. And, and watching table rock which the description of this made me want to go visit cape town because wow but anyway um right so she's looking off the boat sitting on the edge and somebody comes up and tries to like choke her slash throw her overboard and then harry rayburn comes to rescue her her, and then then afterwards he saves her and then he's like choking her and he she's he's like i could just kill you right now and she's like that's so hot okay okay there's (laughs) there's something that happens he saves her and says are you okay what was that oh my goodness and she says thank you for saving me 
man in the brown suit and he's like what the hell and then she goes yeah um harry lucas because all these things he's figured out and really is like let me push all your trigger points ha 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 even though you just saved me and he starts choking and, and that's like, when he's like if i just put my hands around your neck i can kill you and he puts his hand around her neck and then in her own voice as a narrator he's she's like i know he might do it but this was the best day of my life. And this is the best thing that ever happened to me. And I was like, okay, s and in the 20s. I did not know that Agatha Christie got into fetish lifestyles. And, um, yep, you know, yeah. anoxia as a, you know, I didn't know. Because it was intense. And she's just like, she basically was like, his hands around my neck just like, verified to me that this is the dude I should be stalking. <laughs> I was like, well, what? she also said like it was the best moment of my life or something. Yeah, like, something like that. Of like Uh oh. I can't hear you. Am I back? Oh yeah, you're back. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So anyways, this uh she so basically I... is super into the choking. <laughs> but then they It's her um... jam. She's into it. So they after the choking, they go actually kind of between the choke, the her being thrown overboard and the choking, is they go chasing after the guy, and they go running around and then they go around a corner and they find Guy Paget knocked out on the floor. They didn't knock him out; they just find him on the floor. Right. So we, so the as a reader, at that point, you make the assumption that Guy Paget is the one that tried to choke her. And then is the like, oh, did he do this? And then they start the banter where she's like, oh, by the way, I know that. Oh, is that when the sexy choking happened? I didn't know when the sexy choking was. That's when she's like, oh, I know that A, you're wanted for murder in England and B, wanted for diamond theft. Like, I could ruin your life. And then you sexy choking. Yeah. So, (laughs) and then they go to bed after like this, like back and forth teasing. And it was interesting because he started calling her a witch yeah and i was thinking and i think it was because like she figured out so much about who he was like both being the man in the brown suit and being and the harry lucas reference and he was like she's a witch because women can't know things unless they are supernaturally well to be fair like she didn't know any of these characters any of these people like a week ago so but also the reason why i mentioned that is like did he say witch because there are there's other words could be i'm just saying like he could have because she said, i mean she was ready to go with sexy choking so i don't think she was cleaning that up if he'd called her other things i think she would have used like that bitch. because i was thinking like if he was like witch and bitch you know but uh, yeah like witch has a kind of like, i mean once if they, if they haven't edited out sexy choking they're not editing out the b word right okay <laughs> i don't know i don't do i don't know 1920s editing maybe the b word is off limit but sexy choking is fine i don't know i don't know they're pg-13 <laughs> so they arrive in cape town and, and then at, at some point someone else figures out that harry is the man in the brown suit right and so when they arrive in cape town he like has to sneak off the boat apparently like she doesn't yeah, she didn't tell okay, but yeah. but in the morning they see each other and they do kind of like um sorry about last night moment like a morning yeah he does he does do that like sorry about the sexy choking and she was like it's cool it's cool i'm not gonna tell on you about being a a murderer and a diamond thief right so they have this kind of like in the light of day what we did last night feels bad which you know morning after that happens that happens definitely happens so So he goes underground so he doesn't have to go to jail for all the reasons 
Right. And so she gets the hotel. She's staying at the same hotel with Suzanne because they're like BFFs now. And while she's out, um, uh, she comes back to the hotel and there's a note that says, hey, we saw in the paper, because this is how things happened back then, that the daughter of professing, Professor Bedingfeld has arrived. And so the Museum of Anthropology would like to, you to come and visit. Here was where you would like to come and have tea with us. Right. So she goes to the house like, oh, that's sweet. They still care about my dad. But it's a trap. Right. By the way, random little travel thing, even though she was like, I'm not going to talk about traveling. Cape Town is a cape. So there's water on multiple sides. So she takes the train from one end to the other, gets out and there's another section of water. (coughs) And everybody's surfing. And I looked it up. This town is still known as a place where people love to go surfing. Huh. And she tries surfing and she describes trying surfing just randomly before she goes to the museum. She's like, I'll try surfing. Yeah, I'm she like, does how it's like really like you're, you're first you're bad at it, but then you have one good run. You feel good about it, which I can relate to because I took a surfing lesson. when I lived in California a long time ago and I was pretty bad, um, but it's a little bit fun if you get a so good run. It was just kind of random because it was like, oh, and she also because. I cannot imagine being like, I just arrived in a country I've never been to. I'm going to take a train by myself to the other part of this big city. And then what the hell? People are surfing. I'm going to try it. And she didn't even know the word surf. She was just like, they're doing this thing in the water with boards. (laughs) Like It wasn't even like they'd heard of surfing. (laughs) You're right. So for tea, she goes to um, the house and then she goes in and the door shuts. And she's a trap. Wait a minute. So they're like, Haha. there's a Dutchman. There's an evil Dutchman who's like, the colonel waits for you. I don't know how to do a Dutch accent. But he's you, like, have to, you have to do an evil South African a- accent, which is, you know, I kind of associate South African accent, a- accents with evil. So I know yeah. it's hard to hear an Afrikaans accent without just thinking just like evil racist. Um, right. But, but uh, which is why I'm sure uh, Charlize Theron never uses her real accent. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. But because um, um, so of, you know. She gets tied up um, in this attic and then she, and they're like, and they, they tie her up and say, we're not going to kill you now because we are evil plotters and we can never kill you immediately because the book will be over. So we're going to tie you up in this attic so that the colonel can come tomorrow so that you have time to escape. And what's interesting is that early in the book when she was like, my life is boring and what I did was read books is I also went to the movies now or the cinema because you know britain but also she talks about these serial movies from the 20s so you gotta think about so it's the 1920s these are silent movies so you would go and these serial movies the idea was you would come back every week to watch and so the adventures the perils of pamela was a serial that (laughs) she's always making she's always making jokes about being in perils of pamela and so the perils of pamela and i think it's real was a serial and I think it was an American thing that came out every week. And so this woman would go out and do an adventure and then get tied up and be in danger. And then the serial would end. And then that would be the hook to make you come back the next week. And the um, hero would come and save her. And 
and talked about like, oh God, wouldn't that be interesting to be in Apparels of Pamela? Although Pamela was pretty stupid because she got herself caught every week. <laughs> she says that. Like she says right. that although she's like, it would be super fun. So then she's tied up in this attic and she's like, actually. It's not that great to be Pamela. It's really not that great to be in the Perils of Pamela where you're tied up and you ache and everything hurts and you can't get out. But then she sees some broken glass in this attic. She like rolls around and she described this as if the author had tried it, where she like rolls back and forth on the floor trying to get to, to aim herself with her arms and legs tied up to get to this piece and, of glass. And she, it's, it's such a descriptive moment right, that I'm totally. like, she, she tried this. <laughs> because she talks about she kept rolling in the wrong direction. Yeah, it was, it was very destructive descriptive and then she gets the piece of glass and cuts herself free and sneaks downstairs and she sees da, da, da. Chichester. 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 Sinjin. Chichester. Chichester. Oh my god. I'm such an American. Chichester. She sees you're the one who watches all the British stuff. I know. Right? I just recently found out that you pronounce St. John Sinjin. So that's why I keep saying that because I just oh, I just yeah. found that out. I had no idea that like Saint John <laughs> means is the same as Sinjin. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, so she yeah. sees Chinister. He's definitely the bad guy with I the trapped know. people, and then he's like, "Yeah, the colonel's coming. The girl's tied up, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, she's tied up." High fiving. Meanwhile, the girl's outside the door, not tied up, and then right. she escapes. So yeah, the next morning she escapes when she figures out whether well, they're not paying attention. And then she runs to the train that she knows Suzanne and Colonel Race and Eustace Peddler on. Um, and she, well, actually, she there's a little bit of this thing where she's like trying to, um, before she runs for the train, she's trying to decide, do I follow Kai Paget, who, because he fell down, he was on the ground after she got almost thrown off the boat so he might be a bad guy and she keeps saying she's she's very savvy because the whole time she keeps saying i'm not ruling anybody out even though she's obviously ruled suzanne out and i'm i've worried about this although it turns out fine but she keeps saying i won't rule anybody out i won't rule out right you know not colonel race not sir eustace not guy paget and and suzanne will be like not them you couldn't consider them she's like i won't rule anybody out and so she's very savvy about that in terms of, like, who should I follow at this point to solve the mystery? Because she wants to figure out where Chichester is because he clearly is bad. But also, who's in charge? Is it Guy Paget? Is he the colonel? Is it the colonel race? Is it Sir Eustace? Right. And then, and then there's that, that sort of red herring with it's like, it's the colonel. And then Colonel Ray's is the colonel. And you're like, colonel, colonel? Is right. it a coincidence? <laughs> is it a right. rank? So, <laughs> is it a serial? Like, Oh, that's Captain. So she tells everybody she's going to take a train to Durban because her plan is to follow Guy Paget because he's staying in Cape Town as Suzanne, Sir Eustace, and Colonel Race are taking the train up to Rhodesia. And it's like, but then she has to like basically get on the train to Durban and sneak off because Guy Paget like helps her to the train. Right. Like weird. So then um, there's a moment where she gets off the train and she's like, okay, what do I do? I want to follow Guy Paget." But then she's being followed by a guy and she realizes they, they know she's not on the train to Durban. Um, so she's being followed by a guy and it's awesome because she's like, what do I do? I'm being followed by a guy. I'm going to go get an ice cream soda. <laughs> she definitely does that. 
<laughs> being followed. Order, Ice cream soda. In fact, like, three. I go in and order a stiff drink. <laughs> I will feel better with a coffee ice cream soda. And she had like three. She did. <laughs> so then they were going to, she see Guy Paget with the guy outside. So she's like, he must be the bad guy. And then she realizes that they were talking to a cop. And Yeah, she's been set up because she's got some, somebody's wallet on her. So she's clearly been set up for pickpocketing and they're gonna about to have the police come after her. So she runs to the train that Suzanne's on with you, Sis and Curl Race. And um, she makes it and she gets on and it's weird because she walks in and she's like, hey, guys. And they're like, what? Because now she's on, instead of staying in Cape Town, like she told Suzanne where she was going to follow Guy Paget, she couldn't do that because she was being chased. And instead of going on the train to Durban, which she told everybody else, now she's on the train to Rhodesia. But Sir Eustace has been like, had been like flirting with her and telling her to come along as his secretary. So she could easily spin it as like, oh, I just decided to come be your secretary because he'd been like play flirting with her and been like, come hold my hand and be my secretary. But because she had said no, he had hired someone from the agency named Miss Pettigrew. Right. And so this is a new character um, who Sir Eustace complains about because he's a big um biden-esque flirt <laughs> and so with everybody but he's like i don't want to flirt with her Ew, you know like, yeah she's she's older and she's mannish and she's not sexy and she's very serious she does not want to hold his hand and he doesn't want to hold her hand because he's she's not the young thing that he wants to hold hands with she's a serious secretary right so he goes so when ann shows up on the train like at the last second there's a moment where Miss Pettigrew breaks her pencil when she saw that Anne had come and it's like mm. anyway. so by the way um, Rhodesia is now known as Zimbabwe thank oh. goodness it's no longer named after Rhodes a white guy is that what Rhodesia was named for yeah this got this British guy who came up and said this is my land you know? <laughs> there's people here but it's mine yeah so colonialism oh. Woo. anyway yeah. so yeah anyway so they go up to rhodesia which goes past kimberly on the way because um and so and they the train stops a lot and on the road they um ann and suzanne get off a lot and um buy wooden carved wooden animals from the locals um there's one little moment where they um do a tourist thing to go look at i looked it up but it doesn't matter but Anne ends up going alone with colonel race and they have this weird sexy carry conversation right and, and she's like i like him but he scares me and and as a reader at this point you're like you don't know if he's the big bad guy who's already tried to kill her but he's clearly like he's either secret service or just a smart guy or the bad guy and so he's very savvy and he's asking her questions and trying to get out of her if he care if she cares about someone and you're like don't tell him anything and as the reader yeah so it's interesting because um he does say something like they end up talking about falling in love and out of love and he says you've never fallen out of love and she goes no and he goes have you fallen in love and she goes well yes and she goes he said before we met, first met and she goes no since then i've fallen in love and he's like oh i know what i have to do right <laughs> so they arrive at victoria falls so again like 
Tabletop Mountain in Cape Town. If you've never looked at a picture of Victoria Falls or never, I've never been there, but she describes it. And then I looked at pictures of it and oh my God, it's definitely on my list of places I want to visit if we're ever allowed to travel again. Oh my gosh. So. I'm looking at it now. Oh, I mean, you know, on my internet, that's amazing. And it's so big. Like, wow. Anyway. Yeah. So you can see why so she, yeah, use that as a landmark. Yeah. So anyway, so they arrive at Victoria Falls. I mean, unfortunately, still named after Queen Victoria, but whatever. Um, so they're at this hotel wow. in Victoria Falls. And um, sorry, and, <laughs> just having a moment. Yeah. I didn't look it up when I was yeah. reading it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I sent you a picture and said, this is a picture of the falls. I texted you a picture. Anyway, um, so uh, they're in the hotel and she's like, oh, I'm out. I feel kind of restless. What's going on? And she gets a note that says, hey, this is the guy you knew as Harry Rayburn. I'm here, which is like, whoa, because this is like hundreds of miles from. Canada. And he's like, I need to so see you. Let's do some more sexy choking. He doesn't say that, but he definitely says enough. And he, he kind of says like inside references that you think it's really him. Right. So she's, so like, she's like, cool. She puts on her sweats. She puts on her Tiva sandals. She's ready to go. Get some ass. And then she ends up. Like she's out <laughs> you let me dark. say that. I thought you'd be mad at me. <laughs> she's shaking going. her head. <laughs> she's like, cool. Let's do this. So she's out in the dark on her way to meet him but then she feels somebody behind her where she's like oh my gosh bad bad guy coming towards me and she can hear the laughter so she's trying to follow the path and run fast and then falls down a cliff and we find out later that they had changed the path with these white stones to mark the path to head straight toward the cliff right so then she is seriously injured and there's a period of time where she doesn't know what's happening. She's coming in and out of consciousness and she says a bunch of racist things. Um. Right. <laughs> About different colored faces. Yeah. And then um, when she wakes up, she realizes that she's with Harry. And she's um, on some little yeah. island off that river where right. Harry's been living before. and he tells her the whole story. He's been living there since the war and he just lives a quiet life and leads to her sometimes. And the woman that Anne has been racist about is actually a woman whose life he'd saved. So she'd come along to help nurse her back. And, and this, he, they're on the Zambezi River, which is a little bit north of Victoria Falls. Um, so if we're kind of following along in Africa. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then Harry tells about the diamond story from his point of view. And we find out um, about Nadina... And they really had found diamonds in South America. It was and true. But then basically they both, they met the sexy lady who kind of made both of them fall in love with her. And then she basically set them up to take the fall for the, for the um, theft of the diamonds from the De Beers mine in South Africa. And so it looked like they'd made the whole South American diamonds thing up. Right. And so he tells about Nadina's uh, betrayal and that um, he, after they were both in trouble, they went to the war and they were both basically suicidal. And then um, he lost his best friend. And so he just left everything and came back and has been in Rhodesia ever since mm -hmm. the last um, 
So then what's interesting is they have some like actual falling in love moments. Yeah, see, at this just... point, the falling in love makes in- makes sense because they're hanging out together. They're hearing each other's life story. They're, they have a lot of time. And at this point, I can, ex- I can accept her. I love him. I love and, him. I love him stuff. And of course, what's interesting about the I love him moment from earlier is that she'd barely spoken to him. She didn't know much about him and she'd never fallen in love before. And in this way, when Suzanne said, you're not very English or British, I can't remember which one she said. Um, I was thinking, you just sound like a teenager. Right. Who's like, I've, this guy is super hot. He's everything. It's but true. Then, right. And then when she actually is living in his place for quite a while as she's being nursed back to health, she doesn't say all of that. They just kind of like... No, it seems way more normal than... And you're right. It is sort of adolescent the way she's just like, these feelings are so big right now. And we don't know how old she is. But She's very worldly in general and not like very um, ingenue as we've described in other books. But when it comes to love that's what the time when she does come off is really young right but then when she lives with him basically they don't do anything like they just hang out and get to know each other and tell each other's life stories for, right like a while until at some point he's like girl you gotta go because this is hard for me and she's like let's get married and i'll live here in the hut with you and then he's like nah i'm a wanted man want- yeah and then they were he, she was like fine i'll go home and then that night, um, people figured out that they were both there on the island and come and attack and like are shooting at their house. And then there's this moment where I'm like, this is so cinematic where they're inside the house and she's helping reload his gun. Right. And he reaches over and kisses her and she's after like he shoots him off. And he was like, that was incredible. And then they figure out how to get out where he puts some basically dummies on the roof right where you know close stuff with things on the roof and then they're going to take a boat around the back but the boats have been cut off <clears throat> so they have to cross the river swimming crocodiles. so anyway but they get out and they go to i don't think it was cape town where was it was it cape town did they go back to cape town I thought they were back in Victoria Falls or whatever. Oh, gosh. Now I can't remember what town we're in. But um, anyway, they separate because they're both going to look. She's going to Suzanne. Right. She She's going to go to Suzanne. And Suzanne, at this point, like, again, as a reader, you don't know if Suzanne's the bad guy. But no, Suzanne was actually her friend who was actually like, oh, my God, you're OK. I do care about you. And then um, and. uh Harry goes to find um, uh, where everybody is who are all of our suspects. So then they set up a warning system so Anne knows exactly if she's getting a message from Harry, whose it is. So as soon as she shows up um, back with Suzanne and kind of like, I'm back in public view, she knows that there's going to be somebody reach out to her and say, oh, um, I'm back in town. This is Harry. And she knows that. So she uh, gets a telegram or telegraph. Oh, yeah. One of them. And, <laughs> and it says, signed Harry. And it's like, duh. 
and, and they had set up with, that he would sign his telegrams from Andy, not from Harry, and that they would have this other code of uh, and crossed out. So they knew how to recognize each other. So she knows it's a fake. But right. she goes along so, to the meeting. Because she she's going to be the bait. So she goes to the meeting. Oh, and the other thing she did when going back to civilization, the reason why I think they were back in Cape Town is she went to find Guy Paget. Oh, you're right. Maybe it was back in Cape Town. Now I can't keep track of it. Know. There's a lot of moving between cities. But anyway, she goes to Pi pa- Paget because one of the most suspicious things about him this whole time is that during the murder of Nadina, he was supposed to be in Florence. But whenever you brought up Florence, he acted super suspicious and guilty. And when she quizzed him, he didn't know anything about Florence. So she knew he hadn't been so in Florence. So she was like, you must be the bad guy. But then she found him and was like, hey, what were you doing that week? And he was like, I don't want to tell you. And she's like, no, no, just tell me because we have to figure this out. What are you doing? And then we find out later that what he said was, I have a wife back in England in the town where... Right. He has a secret wife, wife and four kids. And that's his deep, dark secret. Not... Because you're, as, as a secretary, he, as a living secretary, he's not supposed to have a family, but he's got a wife and four kids. Not that he's got some deep, dark, dark secret, but that's his deep, dark secret. It's a respectable secret. And he mentions that he was like, I was sure Sir Eustace saw me because he, I saw him in the town. Right. Wait. Sir Eustace was in this town. He wasn't supposed to be there either. He was supposed to be in the Riviera. So um, now she knows Sir Eustace is the bad guy. So she gets the fake telegraph. She goes to his headquarters. um, And then we meet Reverend Chichester, who also we figure out is Miss Pettigrew, who is also the night stewardess. Who, who actually who goes by Minx? <laughs> what a name! <laughs> who was also the count from the very beginning of the book? He's right, so he's clearly a master of disguise. So she meets him, and he's like trying to give her, you know, like he's trying to intimidate her, like "Ha ha, we fooled you!" And then he's she's, she's like, like, "Take me to Sir Eustace. I don't have time for these underlings, and I know who you are. I know all your like, aliases." Oh, well, so she goes to Sir Eustace and he's like, oh, you figured out you're so smart. I like you so much. Hey, sorry about trying married. to kill you a couple of times, but you know, you're, you're a great young lady. I'm sorry for trying to kill you so much, but you know, you how keep getting in the get way married. of my plots. Yeah. And he was like, how about we get married? And she's like, no. And he was like, you love someone else. Yep. And he goes, when he re- reveals that he's the big evil genius as compared to um, the secret adversary, he's like, I'm making money, which is for me much more believable as a evil genius right. reason than like I wanted to be the baddest guy just to be a bad guy. But he's just like, I am making money. <laughs> right. I'm like, okay, I buy that. Actually, I do buy that. So it was interesting because he asked Anne to tell him like how she got involved in all this. And she tells him almost everything up until, um, she leaves the island with Harry. Um, she tells him everything. Um, and so he's like, oh, okay. And then he's like, great. Who has the diamonds? Because that's what he really wants. Because he knows the diamonds that were given to Suzanne back on the boat are the ones that would be put him in danger. Because they, they could, could prove, prove, yeah, that there was really other diamonds. Right. That there was real diamonds in South America. And that um, Harry, Lucas, and... 
um, Erdsley were innocent. Mm-hmm. And Peddler was guilty. And I, we never did get how we was going to prove that Peddler was guilty. But anyway. Um, so he says, who has the diamonds? And she says, Harry has them. Um, and she says, write Harry a note. And she knows that writing a Harry a note is a trap. Mm-hmm. So he writes Harry a note knowing like that's a trap. But she came to the thing knowing it was a trap. And Harry shows up. And Sir Eustace goes, Aha, I tricked you. I'm so smart. I knew knew Harry didn't have the diamonds. They were in this roll of film that Suzanne asked me to store her stuff while she traveled. And it's in this roll of film. Ha ha ha. I will let you guys go free and not kill you. And also prove Harry's innocence if you just let me go. And um, Anne's like, sure. And Harry's like, no, he's an evil (laughs) and then but then because it was a thing that Anne and harry planned together (coughs) and they got minx to turn on peddler yes chittister slash Pettigrew slash which we'll get you you and i talked about when we were prepping for this that Pettigrew, miss Pettigrew, is the same name as uh Pettigrew from harry peter Pettigrew from harry potter so we're deciding that that he she is a that they are a um uh ancestor ancestor thank you i was like antecedent no <laughs> an ancestor of the Pettigrew family although right. it was just an alias but yeah okay. anytime you so he- every start- time you see Pettigrew in a, in a in a fiction that's the bad guy bad guy yeah <laughs> so they got they got minx to turn and they got colonel rice to come and anyway they're basically coming into the house so rice turns out to actually be secret service race to actually be Secret Service. That wasn't just a cover. And so Sir Eustace is like, well, I'm mad at being everything being taken down, so to screw you, I'm going to throw this thing out with the diamonds. Yeah, he threw the diamonds down. out of the window to like, you'll never be free, Harry. They'll always think you're guilty. And even though he's been confessing to all the crimes. And then um, she goes, by the way, those weren't the diamonds. The diamonds were in one of the carved animals that you used to hate that we bought on the train with you. And he's like, I always hated that giraffe. Yeah. So then um, final, final conclusion is they catch him and she and Harry are like, I love you. I want to get married. And they're like living this like utopian life. But then she's like, but he's holding back. What is it? He doesn't choke me like he used to. And then it turns out he's not <laughs> Harry Lucas. He's actually Sir Jonathan Erdsley, and he has... Right, so there was the two young men. They both went to the war. One actually died. One was presumed dead. But he was the other one. Instead of being Harry Lucas, the middle-class guy, he was the actual diamond heir. Yeah. So he's and rich so, as shit. And so then... And he was kind of like, well, I didn't tell you because I didn't know if you just wanted me for my money. And she was like, no, I just wanted you for the choking. <laughs> right. But then, and the way that you're rude to me, it's my favorite. <laughs> so they started planning this super fancy wedding, but long distance because they're still in Cape Town. Um, but right. So then they have Suzanne in their life. Suzanne's like going to Paris to get like all the fancy wedding stuff. And then Harry comes to her one night and says, like, I don't really want the fancy wedding stuff. Can we just stay here in Rhodesia? I mean, like, where he had a house. Can't we just stay here? And she's like, sure. That, no, but, and honestly, and, and I think 
her character is set up to want the same thing. Her character wants the adventure. She wants living in Africa. She wants those things. She doesn't, she's not set up to want a traditional wedding and move back to England by any means. So when he says that, she's like, thank God you said it first. Cause I didn't want that either. Right. And can you see her moving to a fancy big manor in England? At, no. Right. So, she wants to adventure and, and so then she arrived. They are living in Africa. It's a year later. They have a kid, but they got a big package because Sir Eustace Pedler um, fled. He had connections. <coughs> he was the big crime boss. He yeah, he had connections everywhere. He but was able to escape. Re- but one of the things that they talk about is that the reason, the real reason, he was going to South Africa, <coughs> um, is that he was an arms dealer by this point and he was selling arms to the rebels not that he wanted the rebels to win because he didn't want them to like he still wanted britain to be in charge he just wanted to make money off of selling the weapons to the rebels um but early military industrial complex right he had connections all over the country so of course he was able to escape and so he sent his diary to anne now he thinks she's in England in a manor house, not in Af- in Rhodesia. But it eventually gets to her. Apparently, she gets her mail forwarded, um, and um, <laughs> so. And then he says, "Please use my diary as you tell the story. It won't have anything in- interesting about the crimes. It's just like I'll tell the story from my point of view." And so, when you look back at his diary, he did. He just skipped all of the stuff where right which is interesting and 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 it's interesting because Anne says at that point and many points earlier even after she figures out that he's a bad guy she's like i just can't dislike him and i'm like he's definitely tried to murder you twice but you don't dislike him like you definitely like have a fondness for him and as it comes to themes as the book like i thought what was really interesting is like even as a again living in 2020 like the idea of the unreliable narrator is still not overdone. Like I was still like, as a new reader, I just read this book for the first time and I was just like, Oh, so what he wasn't, what he was saying, was it true? Or it was like layered, like the way he said things. And so like I, when I read it the first time, I was like, when we got to the thing where like big bad guy reveal Scooby-Doo moment, I was like, Sir Eustace, so that's in the, on the second reading when I went through, I was like, it's clearly him. He's clearly telling us the whole time it, during his own narration that he's an unreliable narrator, but you don't notice it. It's like dating bad people. They keep telling you that they're bad. <laughs> and you're like, no, you're not an unreliable narrator. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Totally. And so, it, you know, it's, it's fascinating the other thing that's interesting is once again we have the big bad guy who's in charge of the big crime boss and he has a diary again like mr brown only this time it's not a big psychological like i i'm deep and dark about you know what i mean it's just a guy who wants to be rich and he and he doesn't write down anything that's incriminating yeah and he says that like his like colonel race is like giving him a hard time for keeping a diary he's like all your secrets gonna come out he's like i'm not writing in down anything in here that's gonna incriminate me it's just the the my perspective on things and that's exactly what it is like it's kind of like his retelling as he wants to be seen but as a reader you don't realize that he's unreliable 
Right. So it's fun because of the unreliable narrator. It's and, so fun. Um, and I, I found it fascinating. And because she tells us, like, we, we do trust Anne because Anne is set up as a regular narrator. And every time Sir Eustace is the narrator, it says, you know, excerpt from the diary of. So we know it's not like necessarily narration. It's an right. excerpt from the diary. So there's a level removed, which actually is important. So when, when I went back and read the second time, I was like, oh, she's telling us this is an excerpt from a diary. He can write down whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. But it was fascinating, especially having the two narrators. So then, and it worked really um, well because like once you figure out it's him, you're like, wait, what? And then you go back and you're like, it's totally him, but I didn't see it coming. Right. Which is more interesting than the well not more interesting interesting in a different way than the mr brown big bad guy with a diary because his diary was like i am so smart and so evil dun, dun, dun. you know like you're talking about as, from the from the secret adversary yeah 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 because you know we had excerpt from the diary of his but that was much more like right i'm a I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, this is my American Psycho Diary, and I want everyone to know how evil I am. But yeah, no, his was more like, this is a memoir, so I can be seen in a good light. Right, right. Especially, yeah, yeah. So anyway, all right, so now we get to, we, we talked about it or when we met Anne, about this idea of um, that she would take roles. So yeah, this quote we wrote down about, and this is the, what we were talking about, when the solicitor was like, talking to her about oh that must have been so hard to deal with your father's estate and the quote he seemed to think it would be a great ordeal for me and i had to disguise from him my complete composure yeah and that happens a lot where anne has to play into like what men and even sometimes women think that she should be thinking or should be feeling because she knows if she if she plays the role correctly the, the scenario will go correctly for her which i totally can relate to Right, totally. And she, and but she's really good at reading the room. She's really good at knowing the like, okay, I need to be less hot in front of this guy's wife. But also, like, yeah, when she's on the boat or when she's in Cape Town or, yeah. you know. like It makes her a really interesting character because she's doing those things in a way that we tend to criticize women for being manipulative by doing, but it's just literally survival. It's what we all do. We all are like, oh, this person wants this behavior from me, this person wants that behavior from me. And the way she names it, I had never seen named in that way before. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so honest. Um, so we talked about, yeah. So she, the reason why there is a little bit of, um, the reason why she's able to figure things out is because of her to intuition. Yeah. They refer uh, many times to her intuition and Suzanne's and gut feelings and dreams. And I thought that was interesting in the way that like, Harry refers to her as a witch because she kind of figures things out very easily. And like one, she is smart, but two, she also gets gut feelings. And Suzanne also has a dream. The night that Anne gets kidnapped, Suzanne has a dream about it. And so I think the book sort of recognizes that innate knowledge or that intuition or those inner knowings as important and is like, actually pay attention to those because you're right. You can't prove it yet, but you're right about that. And even when she's like, I find the Colonel race sexy and scary, she's probably not wrong. Because <laughs> he is definitely like a hunter and a Secret Service man. And he probably is sexy scary. Right, right. And then we, we talked quite a bit about the S&M sexy scary. But it, it, it was, I, was, I was talking to you about this portion. Like, I had no idea that Regan and Agatha Christie novel 
written in, you know, the 19, early 1920s, that there would be a reference to he had his hand around my throat and I loved it. Like, I just was not expecting that, especially because <laughs> this is not like some deep porn you know, that was banned and burned. Like, this is an Agatha Christie novel. So the fact that she could refer to kind of that, like, the edge of violence was scary to me, or was sexy to me, that, you know, he could he could hurt me and I loved it. Like, it was just so touching on that sort of, like, power play and its relationship to sex that I was not aware of that they would be talking about in the early right, 1920s, right. especially in a respectable Agatha Christie novel like not in some deep underground stuff so I was shocked by that and it was interesting because their moonlighting banter to go back to that is she put him in danger she says I know who you are I could put you in danger all I would have to do is tell somebody and it turns her on to give put him in danger and then he puts her in danger physically and it's just this yeah it's very S&M it is, and I, w- I was just shocked, and that's why I was like, I keep joking about it, but I was literally just like, oh, so this was on the table <laughs> in 19, the early 1920s, that like a, this young adventurous could be like, you know, the, 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 the attraction between her and this guy, okay, yeah, it was sort of like petulant adolescent banter, but also like the, the, the sexy scary part was like real and that she named it, his hand around my throat, I would not want to be anywhere else but there. Like, what? <laughs> I was just, I was really impressed to know that that was something that she could talk about at that time. Right, right. So then back to an ongoing theme in Agatha Christie books that we've seen so far are, are gender roles. And so you have the quote from the very beginning of the book where she arrives in London and when she got to the solicitor's house in she gets into the room that they gave her and she like puts makeup on and like puts takes off her shirt but puts a a ribbon over her shoulder and puts down her hair so it's around her, and then looks at herself and said Anna the adventurous because it's sort of like the perils of Pamela chapter one the house in Kensington and then she's like okay girls are foolish things and it was one of those moments of like i know i'm being really dorky because, <laughs> <laughs> but i'm into it you know like she was doing cosplay she totally was doing cosplay and then like and i actually liked the moment where she's doing cosplay in the mirror like da, 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 da. i'm so i'm sexy adventurous even though i just literally like am in this house in london but then she like minimizes herself by saying girls are such foolish things. And I was like, no, you were on the right track. You were foolish. But I think it, you know, like how do you, because we all kind of do that because it's more, it, I, and I, is that a gender thing or is it a, a young thing of going like, I am the adventurous and I dress myself up adventurous and I look myself in the mirror. If it had been now, she would have taken a selfie of like, <laughs> yeah, it definitely was a selfie I moment. And then the regret of the selfie moment where you're like, what did I post that? Let me delete it. Felt cute. Right. Might delete. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause she definitely dressed herself up and said, I'm ready for adventure. And I've got a ribbon on my shoulder. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> 
then she's like, okay, that was stupid. You know, might right. be later. I think that's what the girls are such foolish. Okay, I, I like that. And then I thought it was very poignant because she's talking about, so she's staying with a solicitor and his wife and they're all like society people, to-do people. We're living in the suburbs. Kensington is like the suburbs of London. So they were rich in the suburbs. And she's talking about this wife and all of her friends who all spend their time. They go to each other's houses and they talk about their maids and what's wrong with their maids. And they talk about the... And they complain the, about other countries and they never want to travel. And they, and they just complain about everything. And even though they're rich and privileged, they, they live in a very small world and complain about it constantly. And so it's like she mentions like even of their self-appointed jobs, they're bad at it. Like they just spend all their time being miserable. And I thought that was really interesting. And I, I actually like that commentary because I think it's even, it's easy even in today's society to fall into being professionally angry about the world you make or making your world about what you're mad at. <laughs> and so I thought the way that she had that perspective on these suburban ladies being excited to be angry about everything and i was like oh that's so that's so poignant and the other thing that was interesting because she complained about the fact that they never traveled and the only place they did travel to was the riviera and the only place they, because they didn't like to go to the places where they didn't speak english or there weren't english people and she was like you know really and so her contrast of going like oh that's a boat to south africa which i've never been to sure i'll go and then she didn't go to South Africa and go, hey, there's not enough English people here. Right. You know, like, right. Yeah, so. yeah. She really appreciated traveling. And that's why I think she was attracted to so the contrast between the suburban ladies. But then when she sees Suzanne, who's probably of the same age as those ladies, but Suzanne is like traveling and sophisticated and interesting. And then she and Anne immediately have an attraction to each other because they're both a little bit different than you might expect. They're both interested in the world even if Anne's young she's not stupid and she's not sheltered or she doesn't want to be sheltered and Suzanne is a rich bored lady but instead of being rich and bored and just staying back at her house she's like I guess I'll go to South Africa right she's annoys her husband by going all over the world and being interesting and then they also make a lot of interesting comments about men because oh she's like often patronized by men and like oh. with the with the, but with the newspaper man she goes in there and she's like i'm gonna do this 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 and he's like all right cool because you stood up to me and i respect that um and yeah so it's interesting because she has a she's regularly patronized too in a way of like is it because she's a woman is it because she's young is it both kind of thing of being um under uh what's that called um when the people expect less of you. What's that called? That's underestimated? Called. Underestimated. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting back. Um, but um, so then has my favorite quote from the whole book, I think, and I love this book, is that they've been going on, uh, she and Suzanne have been having this adventure and having a great time. And it's starting to get real dangerous. I think it was after they get to Cape Town and she gets kidnapped and then she goes back to Suzanne. And she was like, oh, by the way, I was kidnapped. And Suzanne's like, we need to tell someone. We need to tell Colonel Race. We need to tell a dude. And and Anne's like, uh, wait. And so <coughs> this is my favorite quote. 
I objected vigorously to this unsporting proposal. I recognized in it the disastrous effects of matrimony. How often have I not heard a perfectly intelligent female say, in the tone of one clinching an argument, Edgar says, and all the time you are perfectly aware that Edgar is a perfect fool. Suzanne, by reason of her married state, was yearning to lean upon some man or other. And there's a few times where she does that, where she's sort of like, if I involve a man, it's going to ruin my adventure. If I, even with Harry, she's like, if I involve him, if I let him make my decisions, he's going to send me home. They're going to take over. And as a reader, at some point, you're like, is Colonel Ray's the bad guy? Don't tell him because he's the bad guy, but he's not the bad guy. But you're also like, don't tell him because he will take over. He'll like tell you this is not woman's stuff or this is not your concern or and she is, she's very legitimate in that in terms of like, if a man gets involved, I lose all my power. And she's very aware of that. It's amazing. And even Harry, like after they have the time that they spend together, he's like, I want you to go back to England and be out of danger. And she's like, I want to stay and finish this through. And he's like, no, no, no. I love you so much. Stay out of danger. Yeah. And, and it is like the men are like, no, must protect this, you know, and she's like, I don't want to be protected. Yeah, and she's not a protagonist that wants to be protected. She wants to be like, it's it's not a good life for her if she's home but protected. Like She doesn't want that at all. I also found it really interesting because, again, we know that Agatha Christie is writing as a woman, but she's writing from the perspective of Sir Eustace, right? And right. at some point. Sir Eustace is telling their like one of the knights on the boats and he's talking about how he danced with women. And he's like, I danced with Anne and she had to pretend she liked it. And I danced with Suzanne and she didn't have to pretend she liked it. And then I, and then he kind of, he uses the language I don't have it written down, but like, of like a bunch of other women, a various stating of, of pretending to enjoy his company. And so for me, like his awareness of the fact that women may or may not have to pretend to enjoy dancing with him and none of them did enjoy dancing with him and he was aware of that he was enjoy- aware of the fact that like zero women like this but he commented on who did and did not have to pretend based on their you know power structure their class right. Anne was young and poor and so she had to pretend but Suzanne's like I'll dance with you but uh... I'm not gonna pretend to like it and it's interesting because again it's a woman writer writing the self-awareness into a man and it's fascinating to think about like are there and again like we find out later that he's a criminal mastermind who probably would have the smarts to be to read the room like that but it's just so fascinating because i think as women we spend so much time with men who are expecting us to pretend we like things we don't like right Right. on whatever level it is in society um and so his self-awareness of she had to pretend she liked it. She didn't pretend she liked it. I, and then he said something like, I forced myself on, and you know, not sexually, but forced my company on many other women. And like his awareness of that, like, none of these women want this. And I was like, I found it so interesting the way that Agatha Christie, right. as a woman writer, wrote his self-awareness into that and i don't know if it's true i don't know if an actual true true uses would be like like our dad in his peak like our dad when he was 47 you know harassing waitresses does he know that they hate it does he think that they like it like that kind of a guy and again our dad is probably not that smart and not a criminal mastermind but like but that awareness of like what women have to put up with because it's it's a socially accepted or because of power because of 
tipping in a restaurant. All those things just blew my freaking mind. Well, and I was thinking about, you know, because I described Sir Eustace uh, demeanor towards women as Biden-esque because he's constantly a flirt. But does Biden, for instance, think of himself when he touches all the women's shoulders as unwanted or does he go, oh, no, 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 they want it? Because I think and I don't know, because Sir Eustace shows more self-awareness than I think a lot of women, of men, especially men who see themselves as good guys. Right. Maybe, so and that, and that's why I think it kind of works because him as a criminal mastermind, he's more aware of his badness. He's more right. in touch with the fact that he's a bad guy and he's okay with it. And I could, we could extend that to his relationship with women, but guys who see themselves as good guys... Like, but it's oh, the same scenario where they're forcing, whether it's dancing or company or dumb jokes or whatever it is under women, and they're forcing them to pretend they like it or not. Right. Yeah. I found it just, it just blew my little mind. Yeah. So I feel like the rest of what we wrote down, um, we've kind of already gone over. That's a nice one to end on is like, you know, because it's interesting because Agatha Christie, like, a lot of women authors she wrote from the point of view of men and women regularly you know and we've had multiple uh just in the four books we've read we've had multiple and that's an interesting contrast to men authors who hardly ever write from a woman's point of view or even try to write from a woman's point of view Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so but most women authors they do it all the time um and so yeah in this book it was fascinating because she did both yeah she did both and like from a feminist perspective she made her woman narrator reliable and her man narrative narrator not only unreliable but the bad guy right (laughs) like he's lying to you the whole book with his own voice yeah yeah so yeah so it's a fascinating thing and i I, that's going to be interesting as we continue to kind of watch her as an, a writer evolve in her mystery novels, which obviously she's way more known for her mystery novels and we're four books in and we've only had two book mystery novels. Right. Um, uh, but as she becomes more and more with a voice about her mystery novels, um, how much does she keep this gender thing um, or you know, other things that we've seen, like money is obviously an issue, has been an issue in, in a lot of these about who has money and who doesn't. Um, so what themes are we going to see in the future? So I think we're close to being wrapping up. Yeah, um, this this was a, it's a long one, but it's such a good book. It was worth being long for. Yeah, such a good book. So the next book we're reading is a compilation of stories um, where... And I think it's set in time before uh, Murder on the Links. So did she invent the prequel? (laughs) Can we say that Agatha Christie was the first person to go back and do a prequel (laughs) to a book? That's a good question. Because these these are definitely prequels to Murder on the Links. Yeah, because at Murder on the Links, Hastings getting married and moving to Argentina. But in Poirot investigates, I screw it up every time. Um, <laughs> uh, Poirot and Hastings are living together and solving crimes. And it's a compilation of a bunch of crimes. So 
um, that he solves. So it's going to be interesting because it's a totally different style than what we've read so far, although it's characters that we have met a right. couple of times. So. Um, so that'll be our next one. Um, but uh, yeah, so this was super fun. I'm really glad we, that you this was a really good book. I can see that this is your favorite book. You said this is your favorite book of all time, right? Uh, of all of yeah, of all of hers. I don't know if a uh, favorite book of all time. Sometimes that changes depending on my mood. It's one of your top books. It's one of my top books. It's yeah. really good. I can see why. It's it's really really good. I can see. I yeah, can see and why you doesn't like it. it make you go want to visit South Africa and Zimbabwe? You know in a way that like she doesn't talk a lot about what's going on um politically um either then or you know whatever but it makes me want to go visit yeah uh, south africa and zimbabwe so um i i don't have any desire to have anybody try to throw me off a train or choke me or um any it's of not that kind things. of podcast <laughs> <laughs> So. that's for that's for our only fans podcast we'll get into your 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 choking or not habits 